This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everyone, welcome back to the New Books Network's Disability Study Channel. This is Shuwan, your um, podcast host. Today, I feel very happy to invite the historian Dr. Jonathan Abrad to join us to introduce his fantastic book, Madness in Buenos Aires. So the first thing I want to do is to invite Dr. Abrad to introduce himself to us. Yes, thank you. My name is Jonathan Ablard. I hold a PhD from the University of New Mexico. Um, and the book we're talking about today, Madness in Buenos Aires, was my started as my dissertation project, which I started in the mid-1990s. I've been teaching at Ithaca College since 2005. Um, and I, in addition to working on the history of psychiatry, I work on the social history of the military. Thank you so much for your answer. So for the next question, I'm wondering why you are interested in the field of disability study or psychology studies? Thank you. Um, that's an interesting question. I got interested in this topic by accident. Um, I was at the University of New Mexico and I'd had a project that had fallen apart. And I was sort of wandering around in the library and I found two books, both with the same title, Madness in Argentina, one written in 1920 and one written in the mid-1980s. And to, that was kind of where I started thinking about um, the way that we can understand history through disability studies. I will also say that I had spent time um, teaching with differently abled children uh, prior to going into my PhD program. Um, and so in the back of my mind, I had been thinking about um, intellectual disability and mental health for a long time. Thank you so much for your answer. So now let's turn to your books. So for your book, my first question is that I want to invite you to discuss interactions between the state, psychiatrists, and the excellent administrators in the psychological reform in Argentina. 
Okay, thank you. So Argentina is a really interesting case study because um, it is really as a colony in the Spanish period, lit, very late to develop and to integrate into the world economy. Um, and as an independent country, starting in the early 19th century, it goes through this period, a very slow period of state formation. And so it's really only in the 1850s that Argentina begins to establish the institutions of, um, of government in a kind of more coherent and national framework. And it's, so it's in this period that we start seeing the first um, uh, institutions for the for in psychiatric institutions, asylums being created. Um, and by the 1880s, um, doctors are beginning to realize that these institutions are insufficient. Um, and so there's a period of reform in the 1880s and 1890s. And um, doctor, psychiatrists, and also other medical professionals go to Europe. They go to Germany and France uh, in particular, and they study institutions uh, for the care of the mentally ill. And they come back um, and start um, kind of petitioning Congress for funds to build modern uh, facilities and their goals in doing so are, are interesting. One goal is, of course, for the care for the mentally ill and for the intellectually disabled. Um, and as far as I can tell, that, that was a sincere goal. Um, but the other goal was to um, was a feeling that Argentina lacked the institutions of a modern state. And so for many people, having a proper psychiatric hospital that divided patients according to cat diagnostic categories was, was uh, both something that was good, inherently good for the people being cared for, but that it was also a symbol um, of, of Argentina's prospects. And then finally, there was a sense that um, Argentina needed to essentially segregate these populations from the general populace for the purpose of helping the country progress economically and, and socially and even politically. So those were sort of the initial impetus for it. And really by um, kind of on the eve of World War I, uh, foreign visitors to Argentina were, were impressed by the conditions in these hospitals. Um, what what was interesting though is that these 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 early reforms um, were not were kind of incomplete. Uh, they were incomplete in the sense that they the hospitals of course had problems from the beginning um, of particularly of overpopulation, but also and this is something we can talk about more. Uh, the, the psychiatric care in Argentina was heavily concentrated in Buenos Aires and not, it was not distributed evenly around the country. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. For the next question, I want to invite you to discuss psychiatrists' frustration with the reforming mental institutions. Y yes, psychiatrists became very frustrated. So one of the things, and this is... Um, how would we say a repeating theme in psychiatry history everywhere in the world, which is essentially you build a, you build a hospital 
um, with a capacity for 200 patients. And quickly you discover that um, in the catchment area of your hospital, there are 400 patients or 500 patients or potential patients who are seeking care or who are being sent there. So the hospitals quickly became overcrowded. Um, and the, the doctor, I mean, there were a couple of things going on. One was, and again, this is also a repeating theme, psychiatrists felt like they weren't being taken seriously and that their branch of medicine um, did not receive the kind of respect and support that other branches of medicine were receiving. Um, and so there was a constant battle for more funding. There was a constant battle, um, particularly by a doctor named Dr. Domingo Cabred and others later to, um, the, to build a network of psychiatric hospitals throughout the country. Um, because one of the problems that was frustrating for doctors was that patients would be sent to the asylum in Buenos Aires from very far away. And these patients often were sent by train or by, by other conveyance. And then once they were in Buenos Aires, they didn't have a family network. They didn't have a place to go back to once they were, once they were um, in better condition. So that was one of the problems. The other issue that doctors faced, which was a frustration, was that Argentina is receiving a massive wave of immigrants primarily from Southern Europe, but also from Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And they're all coming into Buenos Aires for the most part, right? And many of them leave and go elsewhere, but many stay. And so the city grows much faster uh, than the institutions can, can support them. And so essentially a big, big issue is simply funding and the building of better hospitals. Um, and, um, that becomes a, a big issue. Um, the other debate, which I th is the debate over the legal status of psychiatric patients. Um, and doctors are frustrated um, that there is not a more rigorous system for um, essentially controlling and monitoring the legal status of patients. Um, and so this is another issue that, that will emerge. Okay, thank you so much for your answer again. So for next question, I want to invite you to talk about patient's experience with the mental institutions. So this was really interesting. Um, <clears throat> and I'll go back to the, the book that got me interested, the books that got me interested in this specific topic. It was two books called Madness in Argentina, one written in 1920, or 1919, 1920, and the other in the mid-1980s. The first book portrayed psychiatric hospitals um, as these marvelous institutions that were a symbol of Argentina's entree into the modern world. And the other book, written in the 1980s, after the last dictatorship, portrayed hospitals essentially as prisons. And I thought that there that it probably was somewhere in between. Um, and so I went into this project, curious to see what patient experience was actually like. And it won't surprise anyone to hear that, that experiences were cut across a wide spectrum. 
Um, and so uh, there were, for example, um, many cases of family members confining a loved one to the hospital for a period of time. And then those same family members uh, requesting that the patient be uh, removed from the hospital and brought back home. There were also cases, um, particularly of domestic servants, who were confined at the, at the petition of their employers. Um, and these were often young women, often immigrant. Um, and their, their cases um, often seem to border on um, uh, you know, a, a more abusive kind of situation. Um, so patient experiences varied widely. Like psychiatric hospitals everywhere, um, you know, patients um, did not necessarily stay there for the rest of their lives. Many of them got better um, or, you know, had or their, their symptoms diminished and, and they left. Um, one of the things that, that did come out for me was that it was clear that psychiatric patients, to some degree, um, understood that in order to be released from the hospital, they had to, be, they had to um, acclimate to the culture of the hospital. So, for example, um, patients who refused to do work in the hospital were often uh, deemed to be... Um, recalcitrant, uh, defiant, um, whereas those patients that agreed to the work regimen of the hospital tended to um, eventually uh, be viewed as, as having been cured or improved enough to be released. The other th piece of it, though, that was really interesting to me was, and this goes back to the legal question, was that psychiatrists had this interesting uh, double view of families. So on one hand, they saw, they understood families to be a support system for people with mental illness. On the other hand, they viewed families as um, a, a, a source of problem. And one of the problems was that they quickly realized that families um, would use the psychiatric hospital um, they, they viewed, they viewed, they, they understood ways to get people, their relatives into the hospital if they wanted to say, get rid of somebody, um, or if there was a, a legal dispute over an inheritance. So doctors had this kind of double view of families, um, as both a source of strength and as a source of problems. And so they were constantly trying to kind of negotiate with families around these questions. Um, and, and sometimes they viewed family petitions to release a relative with great suspicion. So they were just, they, they were all over the place in terms of how they viewed families. Um, but I do remember one of my, one of the most touching cases I found was of a, a woman from um, the province of Buenos Aires, so out in the country, whose daughter had been confined to the hospital, and she was petitioning for her daughter to be brought back to her. Um, and so, again, the cases were just very wide across the spectrum, with some families demonstrating great love and care for their family members. And in other cases, you know, it, it, it appeared often as if the hospital was kind of part of a strategy um, 
for perhaps confining a troublesome or difficult relative? Okay, thank you so much for your answer. For the next question, I'm very I'm sorry, I'm very wondering um, uh, the family's interference with the patient's experience within institutions. About say that again. I'm sorry, family's interference. Yeah, no, they they were very troublesome to doctors. Um, they would again, they they on one hand they might, for example. Um, petition for a relative to be confined to a hospital um, and the doctors would kind of get a feeling that maybe the family was up to something. Um, at, but on the other hand, doctors realized that in order to effectively release a patient after they were improved or, or even cured, they, they had to go somewhere. And normally they had to go back to their home uh, or to some kind of family context. Um, and so they had a very complicated relationship with families. Um, they, they generally, one of the things that's kind of interesting too, though, is that they, um, they believed that men uh, were great beneficiaries of living in a family setting. Um, that, that men really needed to be in, in a home setting, that that was very important in that way. There were also um, a number of cases um, where women's sexuality came into play. And there were questions about, um, the, w there were questions where women's uh, sexuality outside of uh, marital sex were viewed as signs of, of mental illness. So at, uh, sometimes doctors would see cases where a family was trying to essentially uh, sequester a female relative into an asylum to prevent them from uh, having a relationship with someone that the family felt was, was inappropriate. But I think the bottom line was that uh, the institutions, these institutions were porous. They, they were deeply affected by the social world outside of the asylum walls. And it, they were, and doctors were both aware of this, but also frustrated by it. And I think some of their frustration came from the fact that they wanted to be, um, they want to be doctors. They don't want to be uh, marriage counselors, um, or at least a lot of them didn't. Or family counselors. Okay. Thanks so much for your answer. So for the last question, I want to, it's regarding the conclusion part of your book. I want to invite you to discuss importance and implications of psychiatric institution for modern Argentine history. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I, it's, I think one of the, um, I mean, the way I, I framed the book was around the question of the state. Um, and I was interested in the idea of state capacity um, and the ability of, in this case, the Argentine state to shape and mold society. Um, and what the conclusion I came to was that the Argentine hospital system and, and by extension, other institutions of state um, did not 
exercise the kind of social control over the population um, that uh, we, we would see, for example, in the United States in this same period. And so, for example, Argentina's rate of psychiatric confinement was much lower than in the United States in the same period. Um, and this can be interpreted in different ways. On one hand, it meant that um, the state wasn't able to provide the kind of social welfare that it was available elsewhere. On the other hand, it also meant that the Argentine state uh, did not have the kind of level of penetration into civil society that we would see in um, a place like the United States or France or Great Britain. Um, and I view that as ambiguous. Um, on one hand, fewer social services, fewer medical services. On the other hand, from what we know about asylum care in the United States in the same period, um, it, it suggests that there may have been a lot of people who, had they been living in the United States, would have been sent to a psychiatric hospital and otherwise lived in community. Um, so it's, I think that's a kind of big piece of it. But I, at the time that I was writing the book in the mid-1990s to early 2000s, um, you know, Argentina had come out of this very severe dictatorship and um, there was a lot of interest and writing on the power of the Argentine state. Um, and what I see in the case of psychiatry in this period is more ambiguous. Uh, and more double-edged. And I should also point out that one of the ideas that was prevalent um, in, in, in the 90s and even in the 80s was that psychiatr psychiatrists um, and the development of psychiatry as a profession was linked to authoritarian practices. And my conclusions, again, were more, sorry to keep using this word, more ambiguous. I found a more ambiguous answer to that question. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. So for the last question, I would like to know what you may consider to add if you publish a second edition of your classic book. Okay, thank you, yeah. Um, well, I, I kind of have already started working. I, I, I wrote an article or an essay for a collection in Mexico um, on where I basically took my last, the last part of my last chapter, which looked at psychiatry from the 1940s through the end of the last dictatorship. And essentially at the time that I was doing the research, I did not find conclusive evidence that psychiatric hospitals had been involved directly in state repression during the 76 to 83 dictatorship. Um, I found one newspaper account that told the story of the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, which was a group of women whose children had been disappeared. And they had visited the board of the hospital, the hospital for men, and they had discovered that there were a large number of people who'd been admitted uh, without their names being registered. They were listed as NN, but there was no, um, that was all I could find was this one article. Uh, neither hospital were listed as sites of detention or torture during the dictatorship. 
Um, I could find no accounts that sort of uh, would demonstrate the involvement of psychiatry in state repression. And again, thinking a little bit about cases like Cuba or the Soviet Union, I don't find I didn't find anything. And so the last time I was in Argentina, I picked up a memoir by a woman who had written a, it was a book uh, about um, a woman's sorry, it was a book by a, a, a woman in her 50s writing about the story of her mother, who was confined to psychiatric hospitals during the dictatorship. Um, and she discovered um, various clues that suggested um, that political prisoners who had experienced a psychic break during their confinement in another detention center um, were being had been sent to the men's uh, penal unit, the unit, the penitentiary unit in the men's psychiatric hospital. She also discovered, and I've confirmed this from other sources, uh, that during the dictatorship, soldiers and sailors, members of the armed forces who were experiencing psychiatric breakdown were also confined to this unit. Um, or I'm sorry, we're confined to a, a special wing of the board of the hospital for uh, members of the armed forces. Um, and so I began to look more carefully and began to find scattered reports of political prisoners recounting either that they had been sent to the hospital during the time of their arrest and confinement, or that they had heard of people being sent to these places. Um, and so I'm kind of in the middle of revising that initial article I wrote um, as I collect more information. Um, what I find curious and also, again, ambiguous about this question um, is that it's, it's very likely that in the same institution during the dictatorship, you would have seen a ward where patients were being treated purely on a medical basis and maybe with advanced, um, uh, you know, more advanced psychiatric and psychological techniques and other wards where people were essentially being held against their will um, as essentially as kind of prisoners. Um, and this, by the way, is one of the things that became very curious about these hospitals, which in part makes it logical that they would have been sites of detention, is that these hospitals by the 1950s and 60s were pretty chaotic places where you could often find in the same hospital very different cultures of treatment and medical and social between one ward and the next ward. Um, and so, again, I think the question, it comes down to the hospital is kind of an ambiguous space where lots of different kinds of activities can happen. Um, they're also very difficult spaces to study. Um, in the case of Argentina, the, the documents of patient Patient documents are um, essentially still unavailable for the women's hospital and the men's hospital. 
um, the, what were called the clinical records of patients. And but when I say this, I mean clinical records dating all the way back to the 1890s are not available. Um, it's a real historiographic and archival challenge um, to open these archives up. Um, and it's, I, I'll say that it, in contrast, Brazil and Mexico, um, Colombia and Peru, patient records um, have been studied in much more detail by, by historians than in Argentina. Thank you so much for your answer again. So at the end of our talk today, I want to direct it directly talk to our audience. So I want to say as a disability historian, I personally learned a lot from reading Dr. Jonathan Abrad's newest book, Madness in Buenos Aires, which is a fantastic book. And I believe for anyone who's interested in either history of disability, history of psychiatry, or history of madness, or you are a big fan of a history of Latin America or history of Argentina, I highly recommend you consider buy a copy of this fantastic book. And we are looking for the second edition of this fantastic book. In its publication in the near future. Thank you so much for listening to the episodes, uh, podcast episode today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you.